my gosh, you are here. Welcome back to the Long Distance Love Bombs podcast. I am your host, Dr. Jeremy Goldberg. Today's episode, super cool. Kelly Notaris is on the podcast. Kelly is a badass book publishing editing genius. She edited a bunch of New York Times bestsellers. She started her own literary agency. She spent years working in New York at all the big publishing houses, houses that have put out books that you have probably read. And uh, on this podcast, we talk about that, but we also talk about a whole lot of other things related to life in general, like meditation, following your heart, how do you make hard decisions. It's really good, and she's just a delight. She really is a delight, and she's brilliant, and she really knows her stuff. So... If you are interested in the creative process, in the creative journey, getting ideas onto paper and then those papers into a book and that book out into the world, you are in the right place. You're going to enjoy this ride. And I've also included a bunch of stuff in the show notes about how you can find Kelly, how you can check out her literary agency. You can find her on Instagram. She has a ton of YouTube videos that I just got lost in a rabbit hole of her knowledge, everything about writing and creating and just all the things. So yeah, enjoy the ride, enjoy the podcast, and thanks for being here. (laughs) Who knows where this is going to go is precisely the time I need to start recording. So Kelly Notaris, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Happy to be here. I'm so, so stoked to just what I call dork out with you about writing yep. and books and all the things. For those who do not know you, like what's your deal? Who are you? Yeah. So I am, I've been a book editor for 20 years and I left college and went straight to New York and jumped into the publishing game there and worked at some of the bigger houses there, including HarperCollins, Penguin, Hyperion. And then around that time I was turning 30, I had one of those moments where I realized I was not happy. And so I decided that something needed to change. And I actually found my way to meditation. And so meditation changed everything for me, uh, truly. And it was through a teacher at the, the center where I was meditating that I got a job offer at a spirituality publisher in Boulder, Colorado called Sounds True. And I moved out there and I ran the creative division there for four years, got their book division up and running after they'd been doing amazing things with audio for 20 years, but they were just getting started doing books. And I worked there for four years before I was ready to have a different style of life. And so I left and subsequently founded KN Literary Arts, which is my book studio where we help people write and edit their books. Yeah. And I want to hear all about that, mm-hmm. but I, you, you've opened the doors to Pandora's box for me. Yes, I know. Meditation. Right. Yeah. So this is a recurring thing that comes up in the podcast. And personally, I feel the same way, like game changer. If I could go back 10 years and tell myself one thing, it's like mm. start meditating. Mm-hmm. And so yeah. I'm curious what changed for you mm-hmm. doing that. I mean, truly everything. I I went from, I grew up Christian and actually very devoted in my heart to the religion and then had a separation from that religion when I realized that the dogma did not align with my own personal belief system. Um, And I I was really walking in the desert, I say, for about six years. And it was very hard time for me because I didn't have anything to um, be devoted to 
And that was just, it's a part of who I am. And I was working in New York at the time. And of course you can be devoted to money there. You can be devoted to alcohol. You can be devoted to a lot of things there, but none of them was really my thing. And so it was, um, I actually read the book, The Power of Now uh, by Eckhart Tolle. And I said to a friend who was older and wiser, I want church for this. If, ju- if there was just mm-hmm. church for this. And she said, oh, this is just Buddhism, which it's not. But anyway, it was uh, you know, lucky for me that she said that. Mm-hmm. And I went and found the New York Shambhala Center and it became my church. You know, it sort of was the thing that I ground into when I was in New York, not happy, but didn't know what I was going to do. I mean, publishing is a funny business where they, you kind of believe there's nothing but New York. You know, it's like this New York is the center of everything. There's just no other place you could live. Maybe LA if you want to do the film side of the business, but otherwise mm. you have no options. And so I believed that and was struggling and, um, and found the Shambhala Center. And I just was there every single weekend. I coordinated the weekend retreats. I was a participant and, and I started a daily meditation practice in that time. And so to, to ask like what actually changed, I became um, much more in rapport with myself. I was mm-hmm. able to say, you know, I don't like going out drinking on Friday nights. That's all I've been doing but I feel so happy that instead I get to go meditate this Friday night. And so it's just this way that I found myself, I find my way back to who I really am truly. It's such a beautiful way to phrase it as well. Like I would say I found rapport with myself. Rapport with myself. Yeah. 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 I love that. And it's, it's similar to me of um, having that awareness of, the moment, I suppose, and then being able to distance all of the anxieties and fears and shoulds and yes. pressures and cultural obligations. And yes. I don't actually love my life. That yes. <laughs> like, totally. And yep. if I did, like, what would that look like? Mm-hmm. And it's such a, fin- it's such a funny thing um, to, to admit of like, I just want to sit in silence and like breathe yes. for a minute. Right. Minutes or an hour or a whole mm-hmm. weekend, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yep. And so how did you deal with that sort of shift in personal identity? Yeah. Uh, like I mean, it was New huge. York editing book, go, go, go to like organizing retreat weekends. Yeah. Well, that piece, I just kept it really on the down low. I didn't tell anyone <laughs> at work at all, really, because it was not cool. Um, and then at my last job of my three jobs in New York, I did talking about it. And in fact, I started acquiring books that were kind of in that range. And, um, and I was considered the weird one. In publishing in New York, we call it woo-woo. I was in the woo-woo world and that's sort of spirituality, personal growth, self-help, you know, those kinds of categories are just considered the woo. And so I was, I was embarrassed to be into the woo, but I also was, you spend so much time with these authors, so much time on the books that I wanted to be doing things that I really was cared about myself. You know, when the job offer came to move to Colorado, I, I, that was when I, my identity broke. It was the hardest month of my life between having gotten the the job offer to move out of New York, moved to the, I mean, and Sounds True is a wonderful company. I have to say Mm -hmm. run by an amazing woman, Tammy Simon, who's one of my favorite people in the whole world. Um, But their location was in an office park. And I was at the time working in the ABC news building in New York City on the Upper West Side. There was a Starbucks in the lobby. There were celebrities in line in front of you at the cafeteria. And I was about to make this choice. I I literally thought I was going to die. I felt like I was going to die that entire month. And yet, thank goodness... You know, I talked to the same friend. It's funny how there's certain people, you probably have this too, in your life who are just pivotal. 
and the things they do. So the one who said Eckhart Tolle, oh, that's just Buddhism, was also the one who said, if you don't take this job offer and try leaving New York, you will always wonder, mm. but you can always come back and I will hire you back. Cause she was one of my first bosses. I wasn't working for her anymore, but she was, you know, was, and is one of, um, in a very high position at one of the major publishing companies. And she said, I'll hire you back. So how about that? I'm going to give you the like safe plan B go try it. And thank God she said that because everything mm-hmm. changed for the better. Yeah. She kind of took away all your excuses, right? She did. Exactly. Yeah. Like, well, now you have to do it. Exactly. I, I had a similar conversation years back, um, with my roommate's girlfriend And at the time, I had two job offers. I had one in a place called American Samoa in the South Pacific. Oh, wow. Yes. Which I'd never heard of or been to, but I got this really great job offer. And then I had another one in Hawaii, like living Mm. on a a research vessel, doing all these great things and scuba diving and having adventures. Mm. And I was freaking out. I was super anxious. I couldn't sleep. I didn't know what was the right decision because at the time I still believe there was a right decision Mm -hmm. and that's a whole other philosophical can of worms but nonetheless Mm -hmm. one night she said to me uh which option scares you more and I Ah. was like definitely American Samoa and she's like well I think you should do that one and that to me was one of those moments (laughs) whoa like do the scary thing Mm -hmm. and in that moment I learned that after the decision was made the kind of uncertainty evaporated and took with it the associated anxiety. Yes. And just like my brain shifted into this place of like, all right, game on. Mm-hmm. We're doing this onward. And so you did it? Yeah. Yeah, I did wow. it. Wow. Yeah, I spent over two years, almost two and a half years in American Samoa. Wow. Living, living on a little island and working for the government and learning so many things. And oh, I'm sure. Confronted with all of the things. And um, yeah. yeah. Yeah, cool. Yeah, that was like my former life working as a uh, environmental scientist slash government cubicle living <laughs> entity. Right. Yeah, right. Are um, there cubicles in Samoa? There are. <laughs> <laughs> You're like I know several of them very well. One of them very well. <laughs> yeah, and so that was when things kind of shifted for me. And I, you know, it's easy to say now, looking back, like, oh, that was a pivotal moment. And at the time, it felt important but I feel like it's not until we embrace that hard decision. Did did you have like deep down, like a knowing that that was really what was supposed to happen? You know, the truth is I didn't. Um, I had gotten a psychic reading a couple (laughs) years before, (laughs) truly. And the the psychic had told me, you're going to move to either Columbus, Ohio or Colorado. And I was like, well, I hope it's Colorado. If it's one of the two, you know, I grew up in the Midwest, no shame. I love Ohio, but I really felt like I was, you know, wanting more mountains and that kind of thing. So I was like, let's hope it's Colorado for my, you know, personal preferences. Mm -hmm. And Hey, guess what? Like it showed up. And so then when it showed up, I had a hard time saying, no, I didn't feel a yes, a hundred percent across the board. I felt like I need to leave. It's funny because they often say you shouldn't move away from something, you should move towards something, right? This is one of those Mm -hmm. spiritual principles. But the fact is I actually moved away and I moved away from New York and I did not know if what I was moving toward was the right thing. And I think that that was the big leap that I had to make and why I felt like icky Mm -hmm. 
was that I thought, and the word icky is a true, like I actually felt kind of nauseous for that entire month because it wasn't a clear yes. And looking back, I think it would have been harder if I'd stayed, but, and, and I can't imagine really having stayed because my life has been so amazing since then, Mm. but I actually could have been happy there. That is what I did not know at the time because really it is the matter of wherever you go, there you are. And I loved the people I worked with. I had great friends, you know, you, you, what, I, I could have, I needed a little bit more um, financial sort of um, sustenance to be able to, to get a car. If I'd had a car <laughs> and just been able to go drive and take a hike every so often, mm-hmm. things would have been really different in New York for me. Yeah. That's like new for me to know that. Yeah. And, and, do you find it challenging to have this knowledge and look back and judge your past self? Or is it now meditation and you're fluent in woo-woo and you can just let it go? Oh, yeah. I mean, I'm just, you know, who, who I was then was absolutely the best choice on the menu that I had, if that makes sense, you know? Mm. And what I was doing then and the choices I made, I, I think we all, and this is, comes out of, I, I've been trained in NLP or neuro-linguistic programming by a particular teacher named Carl Buchheit out of... Um, Marin in California. And, you know, he is really the one who's taught me that we can't second guess ourselves because everyone, every single one of us is doing the best we can at every moment. It's, we are making the best choice we can. And sometimes it's not good enough. And that's like, when you look back and you see some things that maybe your parents or other adult authority figures did in your childhood that were just not good enough for, you know, they weren't in, um, in a line with like the holy truths of how we're supposed to treat one another. But that was still the best choice they had on their menu at the time. And when you start seeing the world through that lens, your compassion just grows exponentially and you realize, wow, you know, yeah, I was, I, there were some things I wasn't proud of, of myself when I was living in New York and, you know, and and there's some things I'm not proud of today. Let's be honest, you know, some things that happened last week, I'm not proud of, but Mm -hmm. I was doing the best I could, you know, and, and I can only look back and the meditation is the moment. That's a place where I have the opportunity to quiet down the sort of like buzzing in the head and, and really take stock. How did I do last week? How did I do yesterday? And do I want to do better tomorrow? And so that, that is really what it continues to be in my life. That's so great. I, I heard um, meditation described as um, like every time you notice that you're wandering and come back to your breath, that's like a rep. Like a <laughs> oh, I love that. You're doing like a bicep curl. Totally, yeah. Like that's a rep. And yes. so to me, I, I love that sort of analogy because it reminds me that when my mind is wandering or I get distracted, like that's not a bad thing. I'm just doing a rep. And right. I'm, and I'm yes. Growing, and I'm getting better each and every time. Yes. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. And then that just scales up, of course, and radically yep. alters your life. But yep. Yep. A- absolutely. I love hearing that because that also takes away this idea that I think so many people have that they should be quote good at meditation and good equals not having thoughts. Mm-hmm. I mean, your brain is just a thought machine. That's what it's for. When it stops having thoughts, you're gone. You know. Right. So it's like let's welcome the thoughts and say, I'm going to continue to build the space between them with the mm. reps, you know, mm. coming back when I get lost. I love that. You're good at this. You're, you're very, um, you're very eloquent in your description of complex. Hmm. Ideas. I mean, I am a book editor. 
And yeah, so, I mean, I'm a, I'm a word person. <laughs> yeah, we should probably actually touch touch on that. Touch on that piece, as, yeah. Uh, totally. As we get distracted by the meditation yeah, rabbit hole. Totally. Okay, mm-hmm. so you're a book person. You I spent am. time in New York working for the biggest biggest houses, I would say, yep. right? Yep, totally. Edited New York Times bestsellers. Yep. You are an expert, right? I mean, you know, in so much I as mean, anyone's ever an expert at anything, but yeah, yeah, I would consider myself more expert than the average Joe in what happens, you know, between wanting to write a book and having one in your hand. Yeah. yeah. Like if I met some dude at 7-Eleven, I right, was like, exactly. hey, you know how to write a book? I should probably talk to you instead. Isn't right. It? Exactly. It's funny how when you say expert, I make pictures in my head of like, you know, I'm like, well, but I'm not like that person. You know, the people that are my own mentors, do you right. know what I mean? Yeah. But whatever. Yeah. But yeah, but like, okay, so you know your shit, isn't it? I do. That's true. Um, I do. Okay, so let's jam. I'm like, and admittedly, if you're listening right now, you're you're listening to a couple word dorks. This might yeah. get this <laughs> might get weird. But um, like, let's just jam on writing, getting ideas down on paper mm. for people listening at home who, like, nearly every workshop that I teach, I hear some version of, I want to write a book. Mm. Or I yep. started writing a book, mm-hmm. but then I stopped writing the book, yep. right? Yep. And I'm sure you get this all the time. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. So, like, what's the, uh, what's the inside scoop, 20 years of experience, like, yep. you know, quick and dirty, hey, you guys should probably know this. Yeah. I mean, there's so many different pieces. One is that 85% of people want to write a book. They know that they have a... 85%. 85% of people in a recent poll in 2015 said that they want, had a book in them, wanted to write a book. Wow. Yep. 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 It's pretty cool. I think it's partially because we are all such creative beings and we want to be expressed. Mm. And, you know, at least today, the arts are not really something that they're not something that everyone takes in school at a certain point, at least in the United States, you actually Mm. have to take them as an elective. And so, and, and there's this division that happens between the people that the world has said are good at that and the people who are not. And the people who are not don't take art anymore after a certain mm. point, right? Yes. And, but everyone has to write all the way up through the end of high school. And if you go on to college, you have to write through college. So there's a way that people are like, well, I guess I could write. You know, they want to creatively express themselves and they, and writing feels like a safe place to do that, which is, I mean, you know, as far as me, I'm like, great, right? Because I love words, you know, (laughs) I love words. I love writing. And so it's awesome. Um, But I do think that a lot of people, you know, a lot of writers are actually frustrated visual artists as well. So I encourage Mm -hmm. the people who are listening to try multiple different um, express, you know, points of expression and Try allow yourself to be creative in lots of different ways, and then the one that's really yours will rise up. I love that. I um I heard it described as uh, creativity isn't learned; it's unlearned. Yeah. Yes. They, re- they yes. referenced some study that they tracked children through time, and they yeah. gave them creativity exams or tests, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, and they found mm-hmm. that like for four-year-olds, ninety-nine percent are creative or something. Yeah. And then yeah. by the time they turn 10, half are creative. And I'm totally mm-hmm. making up these facts. Right, sure, sure, sure. But I get the idea, yeah. Yeah, and then they did this other interesting thing where they asked the people in the surveys, you know, why, why are you not creative anymore? Why can't hmm. you? And some strong percentage could recall a specific criticism yes. or conversation that basically broke them. Yes. And formed a story or a limiting belief in their brain that like, I am not a creative person or I am not good at this. 
or my work doesn't matter, et cetera. And then from then on, it was just like a shutdown. Mm, yes. I think that that's absolutely the case. And I can even remember some times in my own life, you know, in different creative endeavors that I wanted to be a part of. And, um, mm. and this actually goes back to the story of me leaving New York in the year, the year to two years before I left New York, I, I was meditating, but I also started drawing mm. and playing the guitar. Cool. And it was an interesting thing. And I was journaling because I'd always been a journaler. So my, I was actually working with my creative energy in a way that wasn't specifically trying to get to some other place. It was actually just, okay, well, here I am. I'm going to draw. I'm going to play music. I'm going to sing. I'm going to you know, enjoy these things that I'd always loved as a child, but I told myself I wasn't good enough at. And I really credit that with being part of what had that leap happen. And me being able to take that leap forward, I think, came out of that creative soup. I, t I totally agree. I think that it's energy, right? Mm -hmm. The creative spirit or, or the process of creation. And in the same way that you can make a picture, you can make an outfit or you can yes. design a room. You can craft a life. Mm -hmm. right? I think we forget yeah. that we decide what life we get. Yes. Right? Exactly. And we're practicing a daily devotion of some kind to a creative endeavor, mm -hmm. kind of honing that muscle. Mm -hmm. When it comes to scale up and, and work on the masterpiece that is your existence, it's like mm -hmm. you've, you've got some reps in or you've got yep. some wraps yes. done or whatever. It's like it and also you, you know it's not the end of the world if you fail. And I think yeah. that's a huge piece too, because we're mm. so trained that failure is the worst possible thing that can happen to us. And it's yeah. like, no, actually you got to fail. You know, you got to mm -hmm. break some eggs to make an omelet as they say, you know? <laughs> okay. yeah. And so, yeah. So I, I often, um, I've been talking a lot lately, actually, since my book came out, I, this didn't mm. even make it into my book, um, about what I call the book before the book, mm. which needs to be written for your heart or your art. And it's okay. not, right? I'll unpack that. Okay. Yeah. So the book before the book and the, the heart or the art, the heart and the art. Yes, okay. exactly. So essentially I get a lot of clients coming or potential clients who have a really good reason, you know, from the mind's point of view for writing a book, say you are a coach or you're a speaker and teacher and all these things. And everyone's saying, where's your book? Where's your book? I want a book of your wisdom. You're so amazing. You know, I want to take something home with me. So they know they quote should write a book. Yeah. And, and this even includes people who've had just really difficult circumstances in their lives and they want to help other people through that, right? So there's some call to service, but when they sit down, they can't write that book. They mm -hmm. find that they have to write this other book. In fact, just this morning, I had a consultation with a client who, you know, we talked three or four months ago and we mapped out what the book was that she was going to write that was going to help really catapult her healing practice to the next level. And it was a book really directed as like a step-by-step -step process for a reader to get from point A to point B. And she came back today and she said, I feel like I haven't done my homework, but here's the problem. Every time I sit down, I'm writing my story. And so we just processed the entire time that how okay that was mm. and how right now her heart is calling her to write something else mm -hmm. and she sits down and the creativity is flowing, just not where her mind wants it to flow. And that that's okay. Cause sometimes we need to write this thing I call the book before the book, which is the book that's like getting the stuff out. 
that has been, you know, we've dammed up. It's the dammed up creativity. It's the dammed up story. It's the thing that we haven't been able to say. And we've just gotten to this point in our life on our journey where we're able and willing to be that vulnerable and to be that honest and to stop hiding and to actually get it onto the page. And that may not be the book that's going to be the next New York Times bestseller. And in fact, they may never even publish it, frankly. They might just write it. I have a whole blog entry about how important it is sometimes just to put your book in a drawer, you know, just like make a pretty little drawer, put some lavender in that and put your book in the drawer. You know, that's the book before the book. The, the now write the book that's for the, the, the ideal reader, the person that you're trying to help. Mm. And so, so how do you process that or how do you work through that trying to identify the, the reader that you're trying to help? Yes. So I so, find, yeah, go ahead. Sorry. I, I'm because um, oftentimes I feel people get confused and I, I did this when I was writing my book of like, yep. Oh, I'm getting confused between the, the heart, I suppose, of like yes. the thing that I really want to make and yes. like the way that I want to do it and the language I want to mm. use mm. versus hang on, no one will buy this. No one will read this. This yep. is crap. Uh, this isn't going to help anybody. You're being yep. selfish. You're indulgent, blah, blah, blah. Mm. And so I feel like, at least what I've discovered is there's somewhat of a compromise between the two. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if that's the right way to go about it. I would be, mm -hmm. love your ideas on this. Yeah. I mean, it really depends very directly on what the goal you have for the book is. So mm -hmm. if you are writing a book as um, somehow to be the entry point for people who don't yet know you to find you and you know, learn from you in some way or another, or as the case is with me, come to KN Literary Arts and be, you know, helped in your book journey, you know, then you need to write a book that people are going to read. <laughs> like you have to. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I, and this is what I say. I like, if that is the only reason for writing the book, you have to think about your reader. You please think about your reader and, and they become your only, your only concern. Mm. If in doing that, you keep coming back to this book that, you know, you, you said so many things, no one's going to want to read this. It's indulgent. You know, the, the, each one of those has, a, is coming from a different belief. Mm. Um, and some of them are true. And this is a part that's hard, right? Like, so, like we read books that are going to benefit us in some specific way. They're either going to be highly entertaining, i.e. more entertaining than scrolling through Facebook or watching, you know, Game of Thrones or whatever it is that's your favorite thing to do. This book is actually going to be even more interesting to you than that in terms of a novel or someone's memoir, or their story, or is actually answering a pain point, is providing a solution to a problem you know that you have and you really want a solution to. Because you have to really want it because reading a book takes, depending on how many, you know, how long it is between six and 18 hours to read. So that's what you're asking for someone. You're asking for six to 18 devoted hours of their time. Of their you life. Of life, of right. the one and only precious life they have, like yeah. make it worth their time, yeah. right? Or sometimes we just need to write the book for ourselves and maybe for our children or our grandchildren and maybe for the people that already think of us as a celebrity. So I always say this, that one mm -hmm. of the types of memories or memoirs that really works is celebrity memoir, but you are a celebrity. Everyone, every single person listening to this is a celebrity to your family and your friends and your coworkers and the people that you work with. All of those, those people want to know your story. So 
great, go to town, write a celebrity memoir about yourself. <laughs> For those people, they will want to read it. But if you wanna make the leap to the people that don't know you, you must provide them either a, a story that is so beautifully written and so unique and original that they can't put it down, which is a high bar. I'm just going to be honest with you. It's a very high bar. But memoir is one of the most difficult genres to get right in terms of finding readers. Or you need to answer a question that they know that they have and they really want an answer to. Jeez. So, sorry, why is a memoir the highest bar? Um, it's, it's the highest bar. I, and, you know, again, is it really the highest bar? I think novels oh and memoirs are both very high bars. Um, the reason why it's a high bar is because it, it needs to engage the reader just as much as a really excellent novel would. And novels are generally not written by amateur writers. <laughs> novels that are read... Yeah. And, pub and, you know, published traditionally and widely adopted are generally written by career writers for a reason. It's not easy to mm -hmm. craft. And, you know, I've even noticed over the course of my lifetime how books have changed and how much more complex they are, how much more um, I go on an emotional ride when I read a, a really excellent novel. It's different than the novels I was reading, you know, 20 years ago. I think it's gotten, honestly, I think there's a way that, that our whole human mind has gotten more complex. And so it's, it's what we see in, you know, amazing TV shows today that are way better than the, you watch TV shows from the eighties that like, really, I loved back then. And you watch them now and you're like, this is so simple. There's no complexity here. Yeah. Like we've actually changed in our tastes, both in TV and movies and also in books. And so as a memoirist, it's not just about you being cathartic and telling your story. If you want to get readers, you actually have to sit down and create a three act structure for your book that contains all of the elements of the great mythologies of time. You know, you have to write it with the hero's journey at its heart. You have to leave a lot on the cutting room floor that you don't want to leave there because it's precious to you. You have to, again, really be considering your reader as the number one stakeholder in your writing of the book. Mm. I think just highlighting again that point that, like, it has to be good. Like, yeah. you, you can't just kind of, like, never have written. I mean, I don't want to say never, but it takes a lot of work to become great at something. Yeah. And writing is one of those things. Editing is also one of those things. Yes. And um, more so than ever, we have the technological abundances which surround us and are and infiltrate every aspect of our life. One one real profound kind of um, outcome of that is that you have access to greatness. Mm -hmm. Whereas 30 years ago, you could be exposed to only average books or average mm -hmm. films because locally that's just what was happening. Nowadays, it's like the great stuff spreads very quickly when everybody knows about it. And mm -hmm. so the consequence, the kind of talent level or the taste is higher than mm -hmm. it was before because we all know what a great book is. We all know right. what a memoir is because right. we've turned it into a movie and Julia Roberts is acting in it. Right, so, exactly. Yep. You know this now. And conversely, there's never been so much, oh, how should I say this? more uh unprofessional writing and i'm like how do i say this in a way shitty that doesn't writing. turn i don't want to say <laughs> shitty writing but you know there's like, never been there's never been so much writing 
yeah. available to us at any given moment. Period. You know, Emails, just text, text, right? Exactly. Ex exactly. All of those things. Blogs, newsletters. Mm -hmm. I read three newspapers a day. I mean, I'm sure that if I had been, you know, who I am today, back in you know, the sixties, I wouldn't be reading three newspapers a day. I'm doing it because it's on my phone. It's so easy to access. Mm. So there's a way in which we are, those of us who are readers and not everyone is a reader. That's another piece, like really important for people to understand. You may want everyone, you know, and every single person in the world to read your book, but the fraction of human beings who actually sit down and read an entire book is very low. Do you do you, I was going to ask you. Do you I know don't percent? actually. I don't know a percent. I, no, but I should find that. I'm going to find that statistic. I was told, and I'm trying to remember this, but I want to say it's something like 80% of people don't read a book after high school. Right. Like, yeah, that does not surprise me. Outlandish. It's, yes, exactly. Oh my goodness. Yes, exactly. Yep. So, I mean, and this is this is part of the beauty and complexity of being an author and wanting to put a book into the world. And, and it's, it's very important. It's actually the, a whole chapter in my book. I think it's chapter two is about motivation. Sorry, and really, what, what is your book called? Oh, my book is called The Book You Were Born to Write, Everything You Need to Finally Get Your Wisdom Onto the Page and Into the World, um, because that is really what my clients are ready to do. And chapter two is about your motivation and really defining a motivation that will carry you all the way through the book journey, which includes writing the book, but that is only about 20% of the work if what you want to do is actually find a readership for your book. Mm -hmm. Because from that point onward, you have to, and forgive me for using what many people feel is profanity, you have to market your book Oh. You have to learn how to market your book and you have to do it. And so many people just think marketing is an evil word and don't want to do it and think like, well, I'm an author, not a marketer. And unfortunately today, those two personas have merged completely. There is really no way to be a successful author today and not be also a marketer at the same time. I've learned this the hard way. Yeah. And I agree with you. And one way that I've found that personally helps me to market my things hmm. is, is this concept here, which is if I believe that this thing that I have created is good and that it can change lives hmm. and it can create a positive impact in people's experiences and I am not doing everything possible to share that, mm -hmm. then what is happening is I am leaving certain people in a state of suffering longer than they need to be. Oh. And that is cruel. Hmm right? And that is immoral. Mm -hmm. And so in some way, I've tried to link this concept of marketing right. uh, away from self-promotion and arrogance and ego and right. more of um, being of service and of value and of helping. Mm -hmm. And that's totally. helped me at least to be more comfortable. Like I just did like a 20 part Instagram story right wow. here to, to promote this course that I'm doing. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, no, this course is going to change some lives. It's going to yeah. shake people shit up. I believe yep. in it. I yep. want to get it out there. Yep. And then yep. there's part yep. of me that's like, you're, you're just talking about yourself. You just want right. to make money, blah, blah, yep. blah, blah, blah. Yep, yep, yep. And you know, everybody seems to have both of those, those voices mm -hmm. in their head. And I completely agree with you and just want to underscore what you said about your, if you have the motivation to help people with your book, mm -hmm. then why would you stop at writing the book? Why yeah. wouldn't you be willing to, I, I'd say like, you know, Instagram, Facebook, um, 
YouTube, whatever the thing is you love, doing local speaking engagements, reaching out to podcasts, all of these things are how we pick up a bullhorn and tell people, hey, I have the medicine that you need. I have the solution for the problem that you're struggling with. Why would you not want to do, I don't understand it. Now, granted, I have a pretty strong ego structure and (laughs) I mean, you know, I can say that after many years of meditation and I am somebody who actually doesn't mind having conversations in public, but, and there are people that are really hard, have a hard time having conversations in public. And I understand that. And I would say that it's harder um, to see how a book will work for you if that is who you are. Although I am at the moment working on, a, I am actually working on a, a whole blog and um, download about platform building for introverts. Oh. Because I have so many clients that come to me and say, I'm introverted. How am I going to do it? And I was like, there's got to be a way. So I am doing research and I'm coming up with the top 10 ways to spread the word about your book as an introvert. Wow. What have you, what have you found? Can we well, get a peek? You know what's or... so interesting is that these days you can do everything from your home, <laughs> which is where most introverts like to spend their time. We're literally doing a podcast from each of our independent Ex- rooms. That is exactly what we're doing, right? Yeah. And so sure, you know, the hope is that eventually there'll be a lot of people listening to this call, but right now it's just you and me, mm-hmm. you know? And so to really, it's a mindset thing to say, like, I'm just talking right now in a very in chat, you know, informal chat with Jeremy and then, you know, that's it. And then I'm going to move on and do the next informal thing that I'm going to do. I'm going to make a video. No one is going to be even on the other side of that camera. And I'm going to make a video for my YouTube channel. And so it really, the number one thing is the mindset around it. And the the thing is that too, very often, the thing that people are actually, oh, it's so funny because they say they're an introvert and they can't, you know, whatever. And the truth is there's something else that they're more loyal to Mm -hmm. than writing their book. And so this becomes a really good roadblock to keep them from doing the thing that they think that they want to do. And that loyalty may be old. It may be a family loyalty from childhood. It may be something about, you know, staying invisible to stay safe right up to, they don't really want to do this. They'd actually rather be in their garden, you Mm -hmm. know? So again, a whole chapter in my book, chapter six about resistance and what resistance is and how it shows up and all the different sneaky ways it can get in there and keep you from doing the thing you think you want to do. I love that. I just had this phrase pop in my head of like the introvert excuse. Yeah. We'll brand ourselves or we'll claim that our identity is a certain way, but it's also a form of hiding. Mm -hmm. Like, oh no, I can't do that. I'm an introvert. Right. You recognize that's just a story, right? Right. And you know, it's, and it's probably got really good, you know, really important. Yeah. It's got great traction and it's probably came from an important place a long time ago, right? Where there was some safety issue that, being an introvert was the safer route to go. And so the question becomes, you know, this is obviously the question for anything big we want to do in our lives. How much are you willing to grow and change for this? Mm. Like, do you want it enough? Because if you want it enough, then you will either find the way around it, which, you know, Hey, I'm trying to do that myself right now with this um, PDF that I'm creating about how to platform build as an introvert, but you'll either find a way around it or you will break through it. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like, is the motivation strong enough there for you? Yeah. Uh, I think Tim Ferriss quotes this line of uh, your success in life is determined by the number of uncomfortable conversations you're willing to have. <laughs> and it's like, it's so that. true. How uncomfortable are you willing to get with others, but also with yourself? Yes. You're like, look, self, uh, <laughs> we're staying in our little bubble too much and we're not taking chances. We're not believing in ourselves. We're not taking yeah. risks. We're not opening our true self up 
to getting yep. help. Not asking. Yep. yep. Help. 100%. Yes, totally. And I, I think that that is, you know, it's one of those places where people get, um, they get pushed up against their edge when it comes to writing a book in, a, in what I think is a really good and healthy way. Mm-hmm. And to also just be easy with yourself. You know, you're trying to rewrite some history that was really important at the time. And so, you know, let's, let's just take it baby steps. One totally, little step at a time. I totally agree with that, that um, advice around 400 shitty words a day or whatever. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Shitty first draft. Oh, first Anne draft. Lamott, my favorite, favorite. Bird by yeah. bird, I reckon. For, yes. If you're a reader or a writer, or a writer trying to write a book. That's you got to, is 100%. Classic. But she's, it is a classic. Yep. I think the other thing, there's a misconception of people that I've experienced. Um, people have this perception, I believe, where they think that authors just spit down a first draft and mm. it's perfect and they just create novels of perfection and flawless <laughs> and it's very easy for them. Right. They love showing up at the desk every day. Yeah. 8 a.m. They're so excited to <laughs> just, you know, get out these delicious sentences. Right. And my experience, <laughs> at least, is that writing is really hard mm. and the mental aspect of it to get up, do the thing day after mm-hmm. day after mm-hmm. day you can't find the right adjective and you get really angry and frustrated <laughs> and then you write your first draft and you just think it's all terrible. Yep. And I've talked to many people now and it turns out this is most likely just the normal way. Yeah. This so here's normal. what I will say to that. Yeah. If you are not having that experience, if you are having an experience of ease and you do love getting up and you're mm-hmm. sitting at your computer and you call me because you should be writing for a living. <laughs> so really I'm this is the That's truth like yeah, yeah I I have we have ghostwriting services just, <laughs> really we could give you a job um because there are people who do feel that way and I'm going to be honest and say I am one of them awesome. but that is my job that is why that's my job. Yeah, but right? that's my job too. And it, I just, I, I'm like, I'm so- you're, you're like an inspiration machine. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> like that's your job, right? And it just yeah. so happens that writing is one of the ways that you inspire. Yeah, that's a like, good point. Right? I would sit down, if, literally, if you gave me something, like an essay to write, like I would, I write for money. I literally do. I'm going to be honest. I write for money because I love writing so much. It's so easy to me. It does come easily to me, but that is, I am in the, you know, top 1%, not even top, but I'm in the 1% of of the whole world who, for whom writing comes very easily. Everyone else has a hard time with it. And so you have two choices. You can either use it as a practice or you can hire someone for whom it comes easy. Mm. Those are really the two options that are on the table. And I want to say that the hiring piece is something that people are really ashamed about. They don't want to like, they would never, I would never know. I'm going to write my own books. And it's right. And I say 30 to 40% of the books on your bookshelf were not written by the person whose name is on the cover. I was just going to say that you have a hundred percent. If you were listening to this podcast. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Oh, I mean, you know, I dropped a bomb. I don't know this you know, except I'm going to just do my disclaimer that I don't know this for sure, quote unquote, because I've never talked to the editor who worked on this book, but I, at a retreat I was teaching in January, I sort of said, and of, I mean, of course, Michelle Obama didn't write her own book and her book had like just come out. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Literally it took about a half an hour for us to get, get clear again. After that, people were freaking out. What do you mean yeah. she didn't write her own book? And it's like, it's not that it wasn't her story. It's not that it wasn't her idea. It's not that she didn't approve every word in it, but I am telling you, she did not sit down and write that book. 
She didn't. She didn't. Just, just, I just heard, deal with it, people. Yeah, She's got better I, things to do. <laughs> She's busy. But I read an article a couple months ago or weeks ago, and it said something like, in, in private, Barack Obama is telling people, well, I'm writing my book. Exactly. It's like a dig. Oh. <laughs> and I don't know if I misinterpreted yeah. the fact. Right, 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 context, totally. But um, that's how common it is. And that's I mean, the, the fact, if, if, you know, ever. If, if, if our dear ex-president actually is writing his own book, I would be surprised. I'm yeah. just totally honest. I remember when I was in New York publishing, um, Bob Dylan published a book. Yeah, and I read it. everyone knew that he wrote it himself. That was the news. <laughs> that was the news. He wrote it himself. He's a celebrity. He's a musician. He's got so many things vying for his time. And he actually sat down and wrote his book. It was so unusual that it was noteworthy. That's why it was exceptional. That's why it was exceptional. Exactly. And that just proves how common it is. I, I, common does not begin to okay. describe it. Celebrity, musician, politician, anyone that you know. Yeah. Anyone that you know who you don't really know. Kelly, <laughs> um, you're blowing some brains right now. I know. And I, I hate to say, the thing I want to say, the reason I'm saying this, this is why I'm saying this, is because I want to just bust open the myth that there's anything to be ashamed of mm. in working with a writer. It's yeah. like working with a girlfriend of mine, actually, um, I talk, I tell her story in the book. I, she was quote writing her book. She's a you know speaker. She's a teacher. She's a coach. She's, you know, whatever, all these wonderful things. In fact, she's also an MFA in poetry. Okay. And so she's writing a book and she's been working on it for months and months. And one day she writes me and says, I, I have my first draft. Here you go. She sends it to me. Mm -hmm. And I looked at it and it was just a pile of little like anecdotes. It yeah. was beautifully written anecdotes, poetic anecdotes, um, little gems of wisdom, but there was literally no structure to it. It was 150 pages of stuff, but it was not a book. Mm. And I said to her, I think you need to work with a writer. And she was so ashamed of that, that she did not admit it to anyone for years. And now she talks about it because she just is publishing her fourth book, working with the same writer. And the thing is, they had so many conversations. They were, she and I worked out an outline that was like 12 pages long of her wisdom, mm. gave it to the writer. Then the writer talked to her and recordings and transcriptions. And it is her work. It is her story. It is her wisdom. It is even her voice. But someone else put the pieces together. And she talks about it as, you know, Ralph Lauren is not actually sewing the clothes, That's right? Yeah. So there's someone who's excellent at sewing clothes, who's sewing the clothes. And then there's someone who's excellent at the vision and the, the strategy and those pieces who's doing that piece. And that is the author. And then there's the writer. And sometimes those two people are the same person, but often they're not. And so why the secrecy around that? Well, I mean, just, you know, of why course. Why not just say, yeah. hey, uh, why right. is it not industry standard to say, hey, I paid, you know, Kelly Notaris to right. uh, write my book for me? Right. I, you know, I think it's because of the, you said something earlier, like it, it was like a fraud or something like that. Mm -hmm. I think there's a way that that has kind of entered the culture. Like I, when I dropped the bomb about Michelle Obama, um, I called it the Michelle Obama. Um, and <laughs> I, and you know, the, really there was one student in class who was very upset like very upset. She came up to me and she said, well, what do you mean? Like I went to this event 
not with Michelle Obama, but she sort of did the math in her head and was like, I'll bet this guy didn't actually write his own book. She's like, I went to this event and I went there thinking I knew him because I'd read his book that he'd written. And I said, you did know him. You knew his words. You knew his thoughts. You knew his story. You knew his methodology. You did know him. And she said, no, it just doesn't feel right. Mm -hmm. And so there's still this going idea that somehow it is fraudulent. And, it's an, and, and all I can say is that it is completely common knowledge within the book publishing business and any of the, you know, what and you call writers it. Writers in general. And like, oh, yeah. Yeah. I, yeah it's just like totally Those that know, normal. know. And then those that don't, you're kind of like, wait, what? How's, right. How's exactly. And you know what I find is once people sit down to start to try to write a book, they start to understand. They get it. <laughs> they get it they're and like, they're like, oh. oh I just to do this? Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. yeah 100%. Exactly. Yep. That's hilarious. So, um, so your, what do you call a book studio? Yes. So you take people's ideas and turn them into books? We do that. We do, we talk to each, yeah. So we are really a relational company where I don't think that there's a one, I just know from having worked in books for 20 years, there's no one size fits all methodology. So we have some packages, but we also do a lot of a la carte work. So someone will come in and we'll just start with, what is it that you're dreaming of? What do you want? What do you want your future to be like? What do you, what's this book going to do for you down the road? Why, why are you writing it? And then we sort of work from there to help educate them because a lot of people come and they're just like, well, I want, you know, I want Random House to buy this book and for, you know, to be in big New York Times bestseller. Mm. We're like, great. Um, do you have, what's your newsletter list like? And they're like, I've never written a newsletter in my life. What's your Facebook following? Well, I hate mm. Facebook. I don't do Facebook, you know? And you're like, yeah. okay. We need to talk. You know what I mean? I find that with people is they want a bestseller, but they don't want to write a book. Right. They want the fame, but they don't want to learn how to play the guitar. Totally. I actually wrote a blog on this about applause. You know, many, many people are just seeking applause. And I don't say it in any way pejoratively. I am an applause seeker, like par excellence, you know? I, I love it. I chase it. Like, this is part of my personality structure. I just know it about myself. So I have no shame for anybody around it. But I do want to say, like, writing a book is a huge undertaking. It takes a lot of time and energy and effort. And it just, and again, writing it is 20%. And then the getting it out into the world and getting people to know about it is the other 80%. So you really have to be devoted in your heart to the process, something deeper than applause. And I only say that because I've never seen applause really work. Mm. It doesn't really work. I like that line, something deeper than applause. Yeah. That's good. I think I think that there's also this other um, idea that as sensitive artists and creators who are spending our time and energy pouring our souls into these works, there's uh, oftentimes this confusing way to look at our work as part of ourselves. Yeah. And I think the reality is that like, I am not my book. Hmm. I'm not my Instagram account. I am right. not my paintings that I do. It's, a part of me, but it is yeah. not me. And so the criticism or praise that I receive for that thing, right? I cannot internalize that. No. Because that's yep. a dangerous outsourcing of validation. Totally. And, you know, those of us, and I am one of them who are predisposed or who sort of set up a a personality structure to be predisposed to finding my value (laughs) based on what other people think of me. One thing that's really true about writing a book is that you put it out in the world and you are going to get 
praise and you are going to get the opposite of praise. Mm -hmm. And so you put it out there and you cannot delete, I'm telling y'all, you cannot delete an Amazon review. There, it, you, there is just no way to get your way all the way back there to, to, into the Amazon algorithm to get them to pay attention and delete an Amazon review. It's, it's there. Impossible, it's impossible. You know, I'm going to tell you a funny story. One time I think I, they did actually delete it and, and I, that I know of. Okay. And it was, it was, I was working at a major publisher and, um, the, the, <laughs> the author was not the easiest person in the world. And that's a huge understatement. And the, the publicity like assistant who was sort of stuck working with this author posted a like panning review as this assistant was meant to be the person who's really like pushing the book out into the world and making things happen and did not realize that their name would be attached to the review. Oh dear. And of course the author saw it, the, that person got fired immediately. And I think that because it was a major publisher, they were able to get to someone at Amazon and be like, take that review off. That mm -hmm. was a disgruntled employee, take it off. But I mean, that was because we had, you know, as a major publisher, you have major ins with a major bookseller and you can actually have those back of the room conversations. But the average Joe, you can't actually, just because somebody, somebody can give you a one star review and be like, I wish I could give this zero stars. And you know what? It's up there forever. So you can't rely on the applause as your motivation because you're going to get the Rotten Tomatoes just as likely, you know, because I, I always say this, that one of my uh, favorite bosses in New York used to say, if the editorial table was divided equally between people who loved the idea of that book and the people who hated the idea of that book, he knew that we had a bestseller and we absolutely were going to offer on it. Wow. So there's some way in which if it generates intense emotion on either side, it's going to generate that emotion on both sides. So, yes. you know, and you want the, you want the intense praise. You're also going to get the opposite. So you have to, you have to source your validation outside of that somehow. And it's an interesting strategy of sorts to seek polarization of yeah. the public. Right? Yep. What's yep. it like arts to disturb the comfortable and comfort the disturbed. That I mean, is it, is that what we're seeing in our politics today? Like they're <laughs> right. I mean, pure... I don't know. I mean, America's pretty peaceful. Yeah, exactly. Things are pretty normal around here. You know, we're all sort of got our ships pointed in the same direction. I mean, I think that, you know, it is, it is exactly what you're saying. It's like, there's a way that we are playing to the outliers mm. right now in our, in the, you know, because it generates furor, and when it comes to a book, that furor sells books, you know, you end up having people go out and be like, what is this thing everybody's talking about? Why don't they like it? You know, and they buy it. So, so. How, do you, how do you balance that, the morality of generating that divisiveness short term versus like, in order to sell books versus like long term? And I guess perhaps that's not necessarily the role of a book publisher to... Well, I mean, what I'd say is, you know, actually, I personally, I never bought a book I couldn't stand behind myself ever. Mm -hmm. Because as an editor, you have to, you are really getting in deep with that author and with that book. And You're, messages and everything about it, everything. Mm -hmm. There was a time when I was at one of the publishers and I got handed a book project that was... Um, it was, um, it was a major celebrity in that has become even bigger celebrity in the years since, um, who, you know, from the alt-right essentially. Mm -hmm. And I, at the risk of losing my job, honestly told my boss, I will not, I will not be this book's editor. I won't do it. 
And I got, you know, a little bit of like, you know, harangued and like, oh, you know, the marketplace of ideas, it's really important for everyone to have a voice. And I'm like, no. And I said, you know, it's not that I don't think that it's important for everyone to have a voice. I do, but this is my life force. And these, these are my days and I am not spending them supporting something into the world that I deeply, deeply do not believe in. Mm. Yeah. It's the same as um, the criminal justice system is everybody has a right to be defended, but right. perhaps some lawyers don't want to defend right. uh, alleged murderers right. or rapists and all of these kinds of things. Right. right. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, that's a tough one, right? Because because it's it is like you i think i i find it a very um an amazing thing that people do that and that people are public defenders mm. because i imagine it could be one of the least um that one of the hardest things you could ever do really if you know that your client is guilty of something heinous and that you believe with you if you believe in the rule of law at that depth in our constitution mm. then that person deserves you know the right to argue you know to lie in front of <laughs> judge and jury and see if they get caught. I don't know. You yeah. know, it's tough. It's a difficult one. Um, what are you excited about right now? Just what you, anything? What are you looking forward towards? In, in, I guess in, in, I guess it can be personal life, but like more businessy. Like do you have a book yeah. right now that you're just like, oh my God, this is going to be. Um, so, like, well, I did just get some news. So we do a lot of work with clients who come through something called the Hay House Writers Workshop. Hay House is one of the major mm -hmm. spirituality publishers and they have this amazing writers workshop both online and in person. And I speak at their events and we often get clients who come to us. And I just got noticed today that one of our clients is one of the winners in the contest from one of the most recent contests. So I'm excited about mm -hmm. that. But I can't announce it yet. Okay. It's not public. Info. Stay tuned. Stay tuned. What is, uh, like, what's the writer's workshop? I've never heard of that. I've heard of yeah. Hay House. Hay House is like the godfather of, yeah. you know, spiritual woo-woo. It's true. It's true. Louise Hay is, is the godmother of all of yeah. those things. Yes, yeah. indeed. Um, so the writer's workshop is a weekend workshop where you really learn about the business of publishing a book. There's a lot of the kind of uh, sobering news that you've discovered in publishing your own book, Jeremy, but um, no, most people I a, don't I know. I a publisher, actually. Oh, you did? Great. Uh, yeah. Oh, good. Yeah. But I What'd still, you go through? Uh, thought catalog. Oh, okay, cool. So you still, either way, you I mean, still it's- still learn. I mean- Yeah. Yeah. So oh my gosh. And what I'm, what I was getting at wasn't necessarily like self-publishing. I was saying just like what you learn as an author is that no matter who publishes your book, you are responsible for selling 100% of the copies. <laughs> <Correct>. <laughs> so yeah. it's like sobering to a lot of people. Yeah. And, and I've realized the amount of work that goes into it, and you alluded to this earlier, but- the writing is 20%, I think you yes, said. Yes. And, and how much after that is choosing the font, choosing the oh, formatting, choosing right. the cover, re yep. redoing the cover, redoing the yep. whole inside, cutting yep. more pieces, going yep. back to things you wrote earlier and realizing this is crap. I need to rewrite this. And yep. Like, oh my goodness. Yep. Absolutely. And one of the things that people are most surprised to hear is that if you are going through a traditional publisher, you are likely to receive between six and eight, nine rounds of editorial work. Mm -hmm. And that, pe that blows people's minds. They're like, what? <laughs> you know, I thought I was just going to have somebody come through and make sure that my eyes were dotted and my T's were crossed. And yeah. it's like, no, 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 <laughs> no, no, no. This is a collab. Jigs a village collaborative yeah. effort. Yeah, mm -hmm. exactly. And that's why, I mean, truly why I created KN Literary Arts is that there's so many people who are self-publishing these days because of yeah. this digital on print on demand revolution that's made it possible to self-publish very easily and, you know, cheaply. And they don't know 
the Any- difference. Well, they don't know anything because yeah. why should they, right? Totally. I'm the one that I mean, gave my whole, I've given my life to learning these things, but, <laughs> um, but you know, they, there's no reason why they should. Um, but they also, they don't know what they don't know about the editorial process. Mm-hmm. And so there are, there's a couple stages of the editorial process that are completely invisible to the end user. But if they're not there, you notice. And so it's like, I want to explain- an example? copy editing. That's like the number one thing. So you have your content editing, which is developmental. Like, does this book hang together? Should this chapter be here? Should this be here? I mean, and at that point, your editor is going to help you potentially take your book apart and put it back together again, you know? So it's like- Structure, big plot thing. Big, exactly. Big picture stuff, the tone. Like, do I like you? When I'm reading your voice, they're like, do you, are you sounding like a jerk or do you sound like somebody I want to learn from, you know? All of that is in the developmental phase. You take it back. You do a major revision on that book. Generally, at that point, comes back to me as the content editor, and that is my role. I'm a content editor, not a technical editor. And I do a line edit where I go sentence by sentence. And if you get somebody like me who is extremely particular, you're gonna it's gonna come back to you with a lot of red on it, mm-hmm. a lot, and um, to the point where sometimes people protest. But anyway, I, I say just read it, and then tell me if it, you really don't think it's better. And if you don't. You can turn it back, no problem. Mm-hmm. But um, usually they come back after they're like, ah, freak out. And they're like, wow, you made it really good. And I'm like, yeah. that is my job. Thank you very much. It's so that's that instinctive, like, like egoic burn of oh, all the red. Just, yes. Oh. Yes. I've had two authors call me and give me, like, b- both really, I, oddly enough, the two that have been the hardest to work with were very famous authors. And one of them was a very famous spiritual author. And to his credit, after calling and leaving me the voicemail, no one touches my writing. I'm an artist, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. He called back and said, wow, you made it so much better. I'm going to take all of your edits. And that was, and I was like, good for you. You've actually, you, you know, you actually do walk the path. You know what I mean? So that was pretty cool. The, the he time. did actually very, yes. And then we have a very cordial relationship Great. today. It all worked out really well. Um, but yeah, and I learned on that, you know, I did, I have learned over the years. If, if, if I feel like someone's going to need a deep edit, send them a couple pages in advance before I work on the whole book and just say, Hey, what do you think about this? Would you like a lighter edit or a heavier edit? What do you think? Mm-hmm. And that usually just makes like the two pages, they freak out, but it's only two pages. And then they're ready when they get the full manuscript. Yeah. Anyway, so that's neither here nor there. Yeah. So we have the, that's the, that's the <laughs> line edit. Exactly. Line yeah. editing, second, second part of content editing. Then as an editor at a publishing company, my job is complete on the editing piece. I hand it over to production. That's where it goes into technical editing. And this is a place that people don't even know exists. So before it gets set into type, the manuscript is copy edited. You got, I assume, did you get your manuscript copy edited? Oh, yes. Okay, thank you so much, right? So <laughs> yeah. you get the, you get, and it's like, oh my gosh, I always show this slide when I give this talk about editing mm-hmm. that of my own introduction to my book and how much red is on it from the copy editor. And I am a career book editor. This yes. is what I do for a living. And there, and she pointed out that I had said actually 101 times in the manuscript. And she thought, she said, do you think you might want to delete some? And I was just so embarrassed. I mean, and to see how I mix my metaphors, I didn't even realize how bad I am mm-hmm. at mixing metaphors until she went through it. So it's even an editor needs that, that phase. Yeah. Most people don't even know it exists. And so it gets completely skipped over, right? So mm-hmm. the book goes from, I don't know, they're like friends, daughter who graduated with a BA in writing. And that's the person that's going to edit their book. And they don't even want to, because they can you know, get her for $10 an hour. And that, then it goes, it gets set into type at that point. Mm-hmm. And that is just a recipe for disaster. I mean, disaster. I actually just sent 
I have this wonderful friend who's just incredible teacher, incredible. And she asked me for my opinion on her book cover, but she did not ask me for any, any advice on the editing process. And I finally, now I'm thinking if you were my friend, I'd be like annoying you with text messages. I know. And I don't know why. And it might be that she didn't want to annoy me or something. I'm not sure. Right. But all I know is that I got the book and because it's now self-published and it's a beautiful cover. (laughs) I really, I, I like the cover she chose. And the interior is a mess. It's just a mess. The, she is such a strong writer, very, very funny. And she's a very practical oriented person. So there's a lot of practices and exercises, all of which are brilliant, but the, just the copy editing did not happen. So there's, you know, a parentheses that begins and it never ends, or there's too many ellipses or there's not, you know, the, then another thing that, oh my gosh, this just makes my head explode. I, I'm looking to see if I have a book here I could show you, um, but I wouldn't be able to show the listening fans here. Um, but there's something that self-publishing authors don't realize, which is that a book in a print form should not have a full line break between paragraphs. It's the number one thing that I look, I'll just open a book and in one second I can tell if this was an amateur book because it doesn't have what's called run in paragraphs, meaning that there's no space between them. There's an indentation at the start of the new paragraph. Mm -hmm. And the number of books that I see that are self-published that have a full line break is far too many for my taste. I mean, it's just, these are the things that you don't know, you don't know. So I really encourage people to work with editors and designers who actually do this for a living so that your book, that you've put so much time and energy into writing, and now you have to put two to three years into promoting that Mm -hmm. that book is professional and people read it and feel like, wow, this was high quality. Yeah, and it goes back to, I agree with all of that. And I think it goes back to just honoring the the love that you put into it and it's mm-hmm. a reflection of you yes but you deserve to have an amazing cover yes proud to have on your bookshelf and you yes know, that was my thing with my book is like i just wanted to be stoked on it yeah and I, I was open to suggestions and opinions and approvals and all of that i just really wanted to be proud of the thing yes like yes. hey i did this here's my words packaged yep. in this way yep and i want to be okay with giving better than okay i want you to yeah. be yo, I wrote this book, like, yes. check it out, right? Yes, yes, um, yes, yes. And, and we deserve that. Yes. And like to spend so much time and energy and all the, all the fixins, and then yep. you plate it up and you don't even notice there's like a big thing of ketchup on the plate. And you're like, <laughs> what are you doing? Like, what are you doing? Exactly. Yeah, yeah it doesn't honor the, the investment that you've made. Yes. Okay, well, I'm conscious of your time. And I mean, I could honestly talk to you for hours. I know, me too. Kelly, this is like, <laughs> This is great. What shall we leave the listeners with? What have we not touched on or famous last words? Or Yeah, I mean, I think that the thing that I feel most strongly about is that if you're feeling the call to write a book, that's because life is asking for something from you. And, Ooh. right? That's a good line. Right? It's just the truth. There's a reason. And it doesn't necessarily, this is the place where we have to get into the position of humility and say, mm-hmm. I am just going to take the first next step toward this thing that life seems to be asking for from me. I don't know how it's going to turn out. Don't know where I'm going to get published. Don't know if I'm going to get published. Don't know if I'm going to publish it myself. Don't know if I'm going to finish writing the book. None of that matters. You know, just honor life's call, take the next step and see what comes, right? And consider it a practice. It's our practice, life life practice. Yeah. Yeah. I love that so much. That's a wonderful way to finish. 
where can people find you on the internet, Kelly? You can, yes, you can find me at knliterary.com. KN is my initials, literary.com. And of course, you know, you can find my book, The Book You Were Born to Write, wherever books are sold. That's so great. Are you, uh, are you on the socials at all? I am on all the socials. I am, but at, 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 yeah, at KN Literary. Okay. Yep, on Instagram and then Facebook forward slash KN Literary. That's where yeah. you'll find me. Yeah. Um, thank you for your time. You're such a gem. I, I really appreciate your passion for all this stuff. Thanks. I love, I mean, it is what I do and it's what I love and yeah. And it's, um, I'm glad that you ended up there after uh, dabbling in meditation. That to me yes. is a perfect example of what you just described. Of, yeah. You just have to answer life's call. I you don't just know why do. I'm supposed to go to this meditation center, but I am. And oh shit, it radically changed my whole life. Exactly. It's so true. And if you follow it, you will not be disappointed. That much I know for sure. Well said. All right. Well, we just did a podcast. Awesome. Thank you. So much fun. It's great to talk to you. I could totally talk all day. It was fun, right? She's so good. She's so eloquent, so passionate about writing books and publishing. I would encourage you to check out her YouTube channel. There's a ton of information there. Also, as I mentioned, you can find her on Instagram, on Facebook, and LinkedIn. She's on the internet. She's on doing all the things. Uh, great human, really kind. We had a really good conversation after the podcast ended, too. She's just a wonderful soul, and I really adore her. So I, uh, I encourage you to check her stuff out. And she also wrote a book, too. You can click that in the show notes. And um, that's all I got, really. Thanks so much for giving some of your life to this podcast. I love you and I thank you. I think you're just fucking awesome, if I'm being honest, truly. <laughs>